So we have been talking about um, we've been talking about sacred things, uh, launching from our study in Colossians, talking about sacred things, and it was a bit of a challenge to talk about sacred things in the context of a culture that tends to deny that sacred things exist. Uh, we do treat a lot of things as sacred, but they're the things that are important to us as individuals. And that's not the kind of sacred that we're talking about. We're talking about sacred things in terms of there, there being a, a divine presence that defines things as being holy. And in order to do that, um, you have to have a singular divine identity, a singular God who can, who can tell us what is good, what is true, what is righteous. And of course, there are a lot of elements within our culture that deny that this God even exists. Or if this God exists, they consider his input into our definition of things largely irrelevant. The result of this is, is a certain chaos. Uh, we find ourselves... Uh, in a, in, a, in a time when the world around us seems to be trying to redefine everything. And all you have to do is sort of flip the news on and you see things that you thought you understood all of a sudden defined whole new ways, given whole new meaning. What we commonly refer to right now as identity culture or identity politics really stems from the lack of anchor points that we have as a culture. We don't have foundational truths upon which to build, and so the only truth that we, we know to refer to in, in, in this cultural context is how I feel and what my personal experiences are. So all of it's coming from within me, and thus you have identity politics and identity culture. Everything is focused on, on your identity and how you perceive yourself because there is nothing eternal. There is nothing divine. There is nothing sacred. There are no foundations. There are no anchor points. And chaos, this chaos, is directly the result of a very godless understanding of what life and truth really are. And the cure, according to Colossians, is found in the supremacy of Jesus Christ. We understand that, that Christ has been put on the throne. Everything's been put under his feet. And our way of understanding the world is to understand that Christ is actually in charge. And if you want to escape the chaos of a world that is ripping itself apart by trying to redefine everything in terms of selfishness, and you return to the order of God's creation. You return to the righteousness of Jesus Christ. This is where we find our sanity. This is where we find our cure. And we recognize that sacred things are sacred. Now, for the last few messages that I've shared with you, we have been considering the sacredness of man and woman, male and female, boys and girls. Now we return to our source material in Colossians, and we consider the sacredness 
of marriage. And again, this is immediately a challenge to the way that culture perceives this. Because the culture has looked on marriage not as a sacred thing, but as a social construct and a human tradition, something that we've just uh, sort of applied, not something that comes from God, not something that's divinely defined or sacred. And so we're challenging that. Scripture challenges that. The culture looks at marriage, particularly right now, as something that we can define that is malleable. Scripture looks at it as a constant, a, a permanent, a divine definition. And so we come to this passage in Colossians 3, 18 and 19, and Paul says, Wives, submit yourself to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. All right, a, a pair here of fairly simple instructions that Paul has included in what amounts to a list of practical things that will happen when we're living under the supremacy of Jesus Christ. So this is one of the, here's a practical application of what this means, how this plays out. To me, that's fascinating. As a Bible teacher, it's fascinating that this kind of tops his list of practical applications. Is essentially he's saying, look, you're going to live under the order of God, the order of creation. One of the first things you're going to do is you're going to go repair the damage that we've done to this marriage relationship. But, kind of a sticking point for the world, isn't it? Kind of a sticking point for the culture. Now, those of you who grew up in the church and have been hearing this kind of message about marriage all your life, uh, probably not a big deal for me to read this passage. Culturally, right now, for me to lead off of the passage that says, wives, submit to your husbands, not cool. The culture's not really okay with this. We, everything starts to get really uncomfortable. You might notice I've spent a lot of time unpacking all of the elements of this verse just to try to get back to this verse. I've got three sermons already in the bag from this verse without addressing this verse yet. Why? Well, probably not for you. If you've been here for 30 or 40 years, no big deal to you. But to the culture around us, this reads like craziness. It's so foreign. It's so out there. What do we do with this? Paul says that love and submission describe the cooperative positions of the marriage dance. Here's this relationship that you're going to form. Here's this, here's this beautiful dance that you're going to do. And he says, somebody's going to lead the dance and somebody's going to follow. And here we have one of the most basic premises about biblical marriage, that it is a partnership. More importantly, it's a covenant, but that's a study into itself. We'll save that for another day. It is a partnership in which he will lead the dance. In other words, he will assume that primary moral responsibility that we've been talking about. And she will offer her help, her grace, her beauty, her vulnerability. She will essentially honor the task that he has in assuming that responsibility. 
And he will respond to her by offering his strength into the relationship specifically, specifically for the purpose of her love and protection. It's really kind of a beautiful picture. Does it work out that way? Not as often as we would like. This, I, 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 I hate to tell you, young people, I hate to tell you this, this business of good marriage, really hard work. Really hard work. And it doesn't, there's so many times it doesn't work out like this. You know why? Because we are still, we're still fallen people. We still bring our sinful nature and we still bring our, our selfishness into these relationships and, and, and we don't live this out the way that Paul describes it. And the irony of that is that when it doesn't work out the way that it's supposed to, we blame the scriptures instead of ourselves. We blame the principle instead of recognizing that we didn't live up to the principle. I didn't know what, uh, what songs... Our youth band would be leading us this morning. I thought it was kind of ironic that they chose, I'll praise you in this storm for a marriage-themed service. Oddly appropriate, because it is often a storm. It doesn't always work out the way that Scripture describes it, even for those of us who are completely comfortable with this biblical definition completely behind it, completely for it, completely believing in it. So how do you think it works out in a culture that is filled with people who consider this marriage optional, unnecessary, perhaps even obsolete? They respond to it with great cynicism. In part because they've seen it fail so often. But the feminists in our culture regard marriage as a remnant of the patriarchy, just, uh, just another excuse to keep women in, 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 in roles that men want them in. The naturalists in our culture define marriage as sort of an unnatural imposition of religion on human behavior. We're all evolved from beasts after all. Why don't we just behave like beasts? To the activists, the gender assignments in this description are too narrow. They're, in fact, they're homophobic. And so often now to young people, marriage is too often really just an excuse for a really extravagant party. I, uh, I was 23 when I got married. My wife was one month shy of her 20th birthday, so technically she was 19. That's what I like to tell everybody. I was 19 when I got married. Now, I know for some, some of our older members, that's that doesn't sound all that crazy. At the time, it, it was pretty crazy. Uh, we, w we met at school in Nebraska, and we had a number of classmates who all got married uh, after graduation that year. But then we immediately moved out to the West Coast because I had been accepted into Pepperdine University. 
get to Pepperdine University, and one of the first big struggles is where are we going to live? Because Pepperdine University doesn't have student undergraduate, married undergraduate students on the West Coast are, are like unicorns. They're, they're, <laughs> they're virtually unheard of and never seen. It just didn't happen. Today, the median age for young people getting married, men is 30, and for women is 28. I apologize for saying that. 30 and 28, so we're waiting a lot longer to get married. Interesting thing is, the wedding industry is thriving. Why the wedding industry is thriving? Because when couples wait until they're almost 30 to get married, they have a lot more disposable income. So if you watch reality TV at all, you'll figure out real quick that we're spending a lot more money on the dress, a lot more money on the party, a lot more money on catering and booze and everything else, all the trappings of the ceremony. We're spending a fortune. It's not unusual for people to spend twenty, thirty, forty thousand dollars $40,000 on the wedding. And one thing I can guarantee you is that in almost every case, the preparation party is a lot more involved than the preparation for the marriage. Now I say all of that, and yet there is a bright spot here. Those who try marriage as obsolete, who uh, are constantly telling us that marriage as an institution is dying, uh, you're wrong. It's not. <laughs> It's still there, it's still extremely popular, it's still going strong, because as much as we've cheapened it, as much as we've played with the definition, as much as we've tweaked it and tried to make it something different, the reality, the base reality here is that all of us desire the assurance of constant love and fidelity that only marriage provides. So while it's tempting to blame the, fa the failure of marriages on marriage itself, here's what we need to understand. In a broken world, every aspect of God's creative intent is distorted. And so marriages do often fail. Men shrink from their moral responsibility or even become cruel and abusive. Women uh, reject the opportunity to invite their Husbands to assume that moral authority, reject the opportunity to honor them, and perhaps become bitter and manipulative. And relationships devolve into a battle for control or personal fulfillment at the expense of rather than for the benefit of our partners. And the culture around us in response to this failure, decides that the divine definition isn't working and redefines after its own will. Now, when I say that we are redefining marriage, I don't just mean in terms of uh, our relatively recent Supreme Court decision about homosexual unions. That, 
That was definitely a redefinition of marriage, politically speaking. Uh, but this goes deeper than that. You see, our, our playing with the definition of marriage has been going on for centuries. We've been messing about. It's not just about the gender of the partners. It's about the permanence of the covenant. It's about our definition of sexual purity and fidelity. It's about our understanding of the purpose and the value of marriage. It's our tweaking of the roles of marriage. It's our denial, frankly, that marriage even has a sacred nature. And so we come to a point where if we're reading Paul from Colossians 3, love and submission as a model for marriage has become not only something we consider quaint and obsolete, but something we consider threatening, dangerous. Here's one thing that we need to just remind ourselves of from time to time. God does not answer to culture, but ultimately, culture will answer to God. God created this perfect and this beautiful relationship. Our ability to take what God created and to misuse it, to abuse it, to break it, that does not reflect on God's plan. That reflects on our sin. So what is God's plan? Here's the interesting thing. When Paul or Jesus are talking about God's plan for marriage, they universally, they all refer back to the same passage, Genesis 2.24, where it says, that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. So if we want to define what sacred marriage is, that's where we have to begin. And the beginning point is that sacred marriage is a union of one man and one woman blessed by God. Now, I would be remiss if I didn't acknowledge that that whole business of one man and one woman is a struggle for our culture right now, is a struggle for many people in our culture who feel that that's uh, homophobic and repressive. And honestly, it has become a struggle for a lot of Christians. And this is a very complex issue, one that I certainly don't have the time to completely unpack this morning. It's an issue that touches a lot of our lives. I I'll just say this morning that you have to engage in an awful lot of theological gymnastics to get around this one basic truth. That the woman was created as the physical, emotional, spiritual, opposite, compatible to man. That's God's But as important, as just as important as God's design of marriage is his participation in marriage. It is to be blessed by him. It's been a big trend lately. Uh, 
towards uh, taking all of the religious elements out of the wedding ceremony, just bypassing them, avoiding them altogether. It used to be, if you want to get married, you went to one of two places. You went to, you went to the justice of the peace, or you went to a minister. Most people went to a minister. Oh, I would say maybe 15, 20 years ago, this real thing started because we had the Internet. <laughs> and so a lot of people who were getting married uh, would approach one of their friends and say, hey, you know, you perform this ceremony for us. And so they would go on and find some Internet uh, uh, Bible church. Well, not Bible church, but a church, some kind of religious organization online that would just sort of hand out ordination and so you get married. The reality, of course, now is that uh, you, don't, you don't need a, a, a religious officiant at all. Uh, most states will, uh, as a matter of fact, allow you to marry yourself. Uh, there's really not that much to it. I sort of lament this, not only because I enjoy doing wedding ceremonies, but <laughs> perhaps for a selfish reason, but also because I think we miss a lot when we, when we are actively working to extract the sacred from this process. We come together before a crowd of witnesses and before God to make these commitments. In fact, the oneness of marriage reflects the divine image of God. That's part of the purpose of this. Just the way that God the Father and the Son and the Spirit are completely one, marriage is intended to be a pursuit of that kind of oneness. And I know when we read this verse, we often think of it just as an, uh, uh, an expression of physical oneness, of marriage sexuality, and it is that. But even that marriage sexuality is symbolic of something deeper, something more. It is a pursuit of oneness. That we will be that unified. Unified like the Godhead is unified. And as a matter of fact, when within the context of that union we honor and worship God together, we become a picture, again, of the Trinity. Instead of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is God the Father the husband and the wife united in oneness. That is an ideal that Scripture provides us for marriage. Because a shared purpose of marriage is glorifying God. Remember that the man and the woman are tasked with caring for the creation. They are tasked with filling the creation with their offspring. Initially, a, a physical instruction, later a spiritual instruction to make spiritual offspring. But a major reason for coming together in marriage is to engage the mission of God together. Now, you won't hear this presented very often. If you were to approach the average couple preparing for marriage and ask them what the purposes for marriage are, glorifying God probably won't even make the list. But God creates marriage so that it will reflect back to Him, that it will glorify Him. It will be an extension of His mission to the world. And lastly, but certainly not least, marriage is a pure expression 
of human sexuality. Notice I didn't say a pure expression of human sexuality. It is the pure expression of human sexuality. Human sexuality, uh, despite the, the impression often created by our more puritanical brothers and sisters, human sexuality is not sinful, it's not evil, it's not dirty. Rather, it is celebrated in Scripture in pretty direct form. But, according to this definition of marriage, sexuality has a context. Marriage provides a holy context of commitment and also a context in which reproduction is a welcome outcome, always. As reproduction is often a side effect of our human sexual relationships. This is, uh, in my mind, a very beautiful picture. And we might be tempted to ask, if it's so beautiful the way it is, then why does Paul seem to reduce it to, uh, to this business of submission? One of the things that we have to understand about Paul's writing, Paul's letters are extremely useful to us, and we reference them for a lot of things. But one of the things that we have to understand about Paul's letters is that they're almost entirely corrective. Every, you know, he'll, he'll throw in some uh, encouraging messages. He'll sometimes tell the congregation he's writing to what they're doing right. But generally speaking, he's writing the letters because something's going wrong. And so his writing is, is about 90% corrective. I remember uh, in my church in Colorado, um, I was preaching through Paul's letters. And I was called into a meeting with the elders, and they said, we have a, we've had a complaint about your sermon series. These people want uh, like five positive messages for every negative message. I'm like, I'm preaching Paul. His letters are corrective. What do you want me to do? <laughs> Just change Paul so that we can have a more positive. Incidentally, correction is positive. Paul writes correctively. And it is in that sense that I think perhaps this business about love and submission comes up because it's where we often fail. He tells wives to submit to their husbands because it's one of those areas where when things don't go right, wives tend to try to dominate their husbands. If they can dominate their husband, they won't respect him. If they can't, they'll often sink into bitterness and resentment and manipulation. Husbands, when, when things don't go the way they're expecting, often become neglectful and apathetic about their wives. They may try to dominate them, and if they can, they'll lose all respect for them. The whole thing sort of devolves into conflict and an attempt to be in charge.
Unfortunately, Paul's advice to us in Colossians is quite terse, and so we'll look at uh, another passage where he talks about this in more detail. In Ephesians chapter 5, we'll start with verse 21. He says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, I want to put this in context because this is right in the middle of a passage where he's talking to the whole church about how they need to behave with each other. And so this is, this is instruction to the whole church. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. But it comes right at the heading of where he's going to start talking about husbands and wives. And I don't think that's a mistake. I don't think that's a coincidence. I think he very much intends for, for these two things to be connected. One of the things that comes up in early Christianity, and we might talk about this a little bit in my upcoming class, and doing a lot of study into the early church, and, and there's a lot of really fascinating things. I hope you'll, you'll choose to be a part of that. But uh, one, of, one of the early criticisms of the first Christians is that they were incestuous. They were criticized. They were, they were uh, uh, labeled as incestuous. And you know why? Because everybody in the congregation was a brother or sister. So you called, you called all the women in your congregation sister, even if one of them was your wife. And so this misconception developed that these Christians were marrying their sisters. Well, there's still, there, I mean, it's, it's a, just a misconception. There's a little bit of craziness. It's funny to us now looking back. But there's, a, there's an important truth in there which is, guys, our wives are also our sisters in Christ. They are equal in importance to us, equal in reflecting God's image. The point here, I think, of Paul's opening is that the participants in this dance are first and foremost partners. We struggle with the disparity of roles between them only because we assume that somebody's supposed to win a battle. There is no battle to win. The aim is not to win, it's not to dominate, it's not to control. The aim is to bless, to bless one another, to bless God, to bless our community, and to bless our children. Then he goes on in, in verse 22. He says, Wives, submit to, you, to your own husbands as you do to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, over which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. This is one of those passages that gives rise to the opinion that Paul is some sort of chauvinist and that he's counseling wives to become doormats of their husbands. But of course, that is not the case. As we've already studied, I want you to recall that submission is not a thing that can be forced or, co or coerced. Submission can only be freely given. That's what we're talking about. We're talking about a wife who freely gives to her husband the authority to have primary moral responsibility her household. The wife gives her husband the gift of her submission, honoring and inviting his headship and his moral responsibility. Uh, when I was in grad school, 
Seattle Pacific University. Uh, the head of our, our departments is taking a uh, marriage and family therapy degree, and the head of our counseling department was this very brilliant woman with a beautiful Australian accent. Uh, and we were a rather small department. I had about 40 other students in my cohort, and so I had a lot of classes with her during my time there. One of those classes was sort of a, we would call it now a gender studies class. In reality, it was kind of a feminist studies class. <laughs> uh, and so I'm listening to this very strong uh, female professor, somebody that I have a great deal of respect for. She's kind of talking about things from this feminist perspective. And I'm in a room full of counseling students that all happen to be uh, young ladies. Somehow I ended up being the only guy in this class. And so it was quite an education for me. I spent all of my time listening to these young ladies. And, and then every once in a while they'd ask me for the male perspective, which was a lot of fun because I could speak for the entire male race because <laughs> there's no one there to argue with me. I became, over the course of that semester, more and more, well, we would say woke. And I would come home at night, and I'd start asking my wife questions. Because I was learning to listen to women, right? Start asking my wife questions. What do you think about this? What do you think about how do we structure this? How do we do... What do you think? My wife put up with this for a long time. And then finally, one evening, I could tell she was sort of getting irritated with me, and I didn't, didn't know why. Here I am being, being very progressive and listening well. And she said, why don't you just stop asking me questions and tell me what you want? Well, that's not very progressive of you. Here's the thing. No one has ever accused my wife of being wheat. No one has ever accused her of being a wallflower. No one has ever accused her of being a doormat. Try to make her one and you'll see. But, while we understand that many women are subjected to a partner who dominates them with cruelty, who is reckless and apathetic. We still want to know who leads the dance. You see, almost as ineffective as a partner who is cruel is a partner who leads the dance by constantly asking, what now? Men who assume no moral responsibility in a relationship offer no moral leadership. As a matter of fact, Paul goes on in Ephesians with verse 25. says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless, in this same way, in the way of Jesus Christ, 
Husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. So the husband gives his wife the gift of his devoted love, living sacrificially to see God glorified in her and in their household. Oh, man. Submission is such a culturally loaded term that sometimes it just draws all of our attention. It comes up in a passage and we go, Ah, submission, what is he saying? And we miss, we overlook the call to sacrifice. You see, for anyone in any situation, the call to love as Christ loved is the highest possible standard. This is not a relationship in which women give and men take. It's a relationship in which men are called to give themselves entirely without holding anything back. To live for the good of their wives, for the good of the Lord, for the good of their children. And yet, culture will continue to be uncomfortable with continue to reject this biblical description of marriage because we're pretty sure that we have better ideas and we can form better constructs. It'll be, it'll be more fair, it'll be more equitable, it'll be more uh, with it, more relevant. And so what do we do? We turn women as much as we can into men. And we turn men, I, I'd like to say that we turn uh, men into women, but that's not fair to women. Um, if you look at the fashion pages these days, you might be convinced that we're trying to turn men into women as they the men's fashions become more and more effeminate. But women are still strong. And we've asked men to become nothing. So the reality is the culture is trying to turn women into men and men into marshmallows. How is that working out? Are we happier? Are our marriages more successful? Is that, is, that, is that playing out the way that we imagined? I don't think so. We have, in the Word of God, a most beautiful and perfect picture of marriage that is built on mutual submission and devotion. And we should not be afraid of that. We should not shy away from it. As a matter of fact, the culture around us desperately needs to hear that we have an alternative to the chaos that they have 